Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, as a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. So on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today's title is Stopping Mission Drift in Christian Institutions. This is something many of us have seen happen over and over again. We have well-meaning Christians who find found denominations, hospitals, maybe soup kitchens, schools, universities, you name it, seminaries, pregnancy centers, orphanages, the whole, and we see lives eternally altered for good. But then as time goes on, they tend to lose their way, they falter, and they become secular institutions, often, sadly, opposed to the things of Christ. So Aaron, I wanted to hear your thoughts about this. This is such an important topic, especially today. Uh, And so maybe you can answer that topic. Why today? Why now? Well, I think, Chris, you're you're absolutely right. There has been a lot of drift over the centuries in Christian institutions and organizations. And frankly, I got to say, I'm kind of fed up with it. Uh, It takes a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of talent, a lot of money, a lot of God's resources to start Christian schools, uh, anti-abortion clinics, uh, universities, seminaries, hospitals, and the like. And we see this happening over and over and over again through history, where you have great organizations founded by well-meaning people, and over time, they drift from their mission, they compromise, and some of them, sadly, even become enemies of Christ. You think of the YMCA, the YWCA movements, which started off as Christian associations. Many denominations have dove headlong into heresy and apostasy. Hospitals, which were, which were fundamentally a Christian idea, have been turned over to radical secularists, to Darwinians, and have, have become enemies of the cause of Christ in many respects. Great universities, you think of our own, our own province um, in the city of Windsor, the university used to be Catholic. In London, it was Anglican. In Toronto, it was uh, Anglican and Presbyterian. In Hamilton, it was a Baptist school. And these institutions are now peddling all sorts of crazy antichrist ideologies. And I'm sick and tired of it. I'm, I'm sick of churches losing their way, of institutions losing their way. And I'm also saddened by it. So I, I want to issue a clarion call to those who are funding, who maybe have founded, who are on boards of, who are engaged in, who are supporters of, who have a voice in Christian institutions from churches to denominations to seminaries to pregnancy centers to Christian think tanks, stay on mission. Don't lose your way. Stay on mission and don't lose your way. And of course, that takes focus because the the, the natural propensity is to drift from, from your founding mission and to become something that may, may interestingly even be opposed to your founding mission. So that's what I want to talk about on today's episode. Mm-hmm. So the natural question that comes to my mind is, why does this happen? So let's discuss the reasons why Christian institutions tend to lose their way. Well, there tends to be several converging reasons why Christian institutions go off course. I would say one of the main ones 
is once an institution is up and running and they're known in culture, they have a reputation, they have an address, they have their shingle out front, so to speak, their sign, and they're starting to build, they build, they build, they build. Over time, there's a tendency to want to go mainstream, to expand your reach. And this often leads to decisions to seek secular recognition or to be accredited by some godless agency or to be somehow approved. So we talk a lot in our culture about accreditation because we're concerned about, so let's say it's an educational institution and it's offering degrees in theology or religious studies and students go there and they take a degree in religious studies and then they want to go to a secular university and they can't get in and they want to do their master's degree, but their degree, quote unquote, doesn't count for anything in the secular system. So then the Bible colleges or these Christian institutions decide, well, let's seek accreditation. Let's become a Christian liberal arts school. And then all of a sudden you find yourself being monitored by heathens, essentially. Mm. And now they want to change your curriculum and they want to tone this down and they want to standardize this. And they're often... It's often because of a desire to seek licensure or accreditation in institutions, Christian institutions, that they literally eventually turn the whole institution over to godless people mm -hmm. and completely lose their way. Um, medical institutions like, uh, I would say, anti, what I would call anti-abortion agencies, which is what they should be, pregnancy centers especially, many of them no longer definitively counsel against murdering your child in the womb. It's more of a client-based approach. It's hinting, but not coming right out and mm -hmm. saying it. It's taking Christ out of the name or out of the mission statement that forces them to, to go off mission. And, you know, when you talk to some of these institutions, well, you know, we have RNs on staff or we have, some sort of medical licensure and we can't compromise it over the past two years under the pandemic, we saw many, this is sort of a related issue, but we saw many churches folding because while well, our denomination told us we had to fold Well, Christ established the local church, not denominations. Mm -hmm. I don't have a problem with denominations or associations, but when a church is forced to violate its own conscience because the denomination tells them they have to, this is where, or a pastor's being threatened to have his quote unquote credentials removed, his ordination documents revoked because he's spoken out. This is not right. And I think that's one of the main reasons. I know of one Christian educational institution that I think is losing its way because its focus is almost exclusively on academic merit rather than discipling people who are going to view the world from a Christ-centered perspective and who are going to influence the institutions of culture with a Christ-centered worldview. It's all about, well, we have, how many times do we see Christian schools, elementary schools and high schools in their promotional material saying things like this, send your kid here because we have Ontario approval or we have approval from the Alberta government to offer degrees or diplomas. Okay, fine. But who, who cares? Or the majority of our students, you know, were enrolled in the top five programs at the local university. So what? We're not opposed to academics. I have more degrees than most people. I'm not opposed to academics. And it's good to succeed, but where's the discussion about making disciples for Christ? That, that's what matters the most. But if you don't remind people of that, remind people of that, that fundamentally 
these institutions are seeking to glorify God and make disciples and fulfill the great commission and speak into culture, it's so easy for them to lose their way. Another thing would be fame and fortune. Let's take Christian musicians. Over the years, I've seen Christian musicians that have a platform to influence culture through their music. And while a Christian institute, a, a Christian musician isn't officially an institution, you could say a Christian band or a worship team sort of functions with an institutional impact upon culture. And they start off writing God-centered music. And before long, they're on the secular radio stations singing stuff that you're not sure if they're talking about being in love with God or being in love with their boyfriend. They, mm -hmm. they lose their mission. They, mm -hmm. they become secularized. And this is a problem. It, it, it's fundamentally, Chris, what it boils down to is man-pleasing, mm -hmm. right? Desiring to fit into to culture. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I've noticed is there's a tendency for Christians to include Christ in their founding documents or in their mission statement when they're starting new organizations. But over time, as they focus on, they, they lose their focus on Christ and they just become sort of moralistic in their teaching. So I remember many years ago talking to a child survival, a sponsorship ministry, which is very well known. And they were, as I understand it, offered the opportunity to merge with another organization that would expand their ability to support impoverished children around the world. But the agreement meant they sort of had to tone it down on the whole Jesus thing. And so they thought about it and they said, no, we're going to actually add more definitive language to our mission statement to make it crystal clear we are serving our constituency in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I commend them for that. That's what we need. But an organization, I heard of an organization recently that sort of took Christ out of their mission statement or that biblical emphasis out of their mission statement to sort of quote unquote expand their reach. Mm -hmm. So now they start to overlap with various community organizations and groups that aren't Christ centered. So it's critical that we are not just Christ centered in terms of our morals or our approach, but that we actually are verbally Christ-centered, that we are very definitive. We are serving the purpose of a, purposes of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we don't articulate in our, in, in our Christian institutions that we are serving the purposes of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will drift into moralism. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're trying to talk like Christ and act like Christ, but we don't really have an, an authoritative foundation for our morality. And they slowly drift and drift and drift away from a Christ-based theology and morality into something that's very, very godless and, and secular. So we need to be mm -hmm. careful to keep Christ central, not only in our preaching and in our churches, but central in our denominations, in our Christian schools, in our social services agencies, in our seminaries, if we're founding medical institutions or pregnancy centers, Christ has to be at the center. We don't apologize to others for the fact that we are Christians, which has Christ in the name. We're serving the purposes of Christ. We're definitively and distinctly Christian. This is what the world needs to hear. We're not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to say I'm married to Susie Rock. She's my wife. I love her to death. She's a wonderful woman. Nor am I ashamed to say I'm in love with Jesus Christ. He's my King. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. He's why I do what I do. Stop hiding the fact that we are 
serving the community, whether it's educationally or medically or through the arts or as Christian think tanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I really think this is fundamental. Mm -hmm. I was just going to jump on that for a moment. I know you've said in the past things like, you know, when Christians go silent, Satan wins. Um, and so these organizations, it's, it's like a, it's a multi-step path to, you know, caving to being drifting from their mission. And one of the first things they might be silent about controversial issues. So when there's Roe v. Wade and all this stuff coming out, they're not weighing into it at all. They're no. just like, they, they don't want their name smeared in the worldly sense by having uh, rejoicing that Roe v. Wade got overturned or something like that. Right. Um, and so not only that, but like the subtleties too, that I've seen this all the time with Christian musicians, when somebody asks them about homosexuality and they redirect the question and they, right. they make the waters murky and you're like, just say it. Yes. Right. Yeah. Christians have an inferiority complex. I've noticed in culture, we're terrified of being lambasted being gossiped about, being too churchy. And the world is masterful at throwing allegations our way. You know, you're a Bible thumper. You're a Jesus freak. Yeah, I am a Jesus freak. Yeah, I do believe in the absolute authority of scripture. We need to become less apologetic and more unapologetic about who our ultimate and final authority actually is, who we actually serve. Ambassadors don't pretend not to know the king they've been sent to represent. Mm -hmm. They're unapologetic about the fact that I serve king such and such or queen such and such or this particular state. I am their representative. We're ambassadors for Christ. That's our fundamental mission. We're not going to pretend that we're not. We're just sort of, we're not on mission to simply bring the virtues of Christ into culture. Mm -hmm. We're, we're on mission to bring Christ into culture. Right. That's really fundamental for people to understand. Yeah. I also believe that money and funding is a powerful deterrent to keeping many Christian institutions on mission. Money often is the driving force behind the decisions that boards, presidents, pastors, denominational leaders, musicians, professors, teachers, principals consider when they're making the decisions that they are making for the institution. Whether it's fear of being fined or losing your insurance, as we saw over the past couple of years with churches and denominations issuing edicts that they were gonna comply because they're terrified of losing their insurance or they're terrified of losing their charitable status, or they're terrified of being charged, this is wrong. When you are unwilling to sacrifice your money for the cause of Christ, you're certainly not going to sacrifice your life for the cause of Christ. There's also the reality that many institutions rely upon big donors, often giving the big donors undue public applause. And when you give big donors undue public applause, they necessarily inevitably often want to control your institution. And they're, if they are on mission with the institution, that can be a blessing. But if they're, if they have an ulterior motive or they don't really understand the founding mission of an organization. So if you bring people onto your church board or into denominational leadership or into your 
onto your school board or your seminary board because they're big donors. Well, you're going to be talking about finances in those meetings. And if these people are subtly threatening to remove their funding, if you don't do A, B, or C, or you've given them a position because they have fat wallets, but don't necessarily have a real clear understanding of the mission of the organization, they can take you off course. Mm-hmm. You know, we can, ins- there's all kinds of examples of institutions that have been hijacked by big donors. It, it happened in Ontario recently with an institution that a friend of mine founded where the board stepped up and tried to hijack the institution to use it for their own purpose, to take it off of mission, to become something it was never founded to be. Unfortunately, that attempt was thwarted. But it happens even among Christian institutions. So it's better to think of money as a a tool, but to hold it with sort of a cupped hand, not a closed fist, and never to allow money to drive the direction of the institution. So for example, in our church, we obviously receive money from our people to fund the work of the ministry, but we literally never make decisions thinking, oh, how is this going to affect our tithing? Mm-hmm. Just, it's not even on our radar. And over time, as people catch on to that, the, you, you know, you're a principled leader. You're not staring at the offerings and then adjusting your sermon to crank up the offerings. You're not shying away from difficult conversations you need to have with people because you're concerned that they're going to leave the church and not tithe. You're not concerned about being fined. You're not concerned about losing your insurance. You're not concerned about um, being manipulated by some big giver. People actually respect you for that. And they actually give more, interestingly. Over time, they give more because they be- people want to give, Christian people want to give to institutions that are authentic and real. Yeah. Nobody wants to give to some schmuck who is manipulated, easily manipulated because someone's threatening to take his paycheck away or his funding away. Mm -hmm. So it's really critical that there's a separation of decision-making powers from financial powers Mm -hmm. in institutions that expect to last and do not allow money to dictate and determine your mission, stay on mission and then seek the necessary funds or money to accomplish that mission. And this of course requires that we trust in the Lord to provide for our needs as we stay on mission and stay close to, you know, his heart for whatever the institution is that we happen to have founded or be part of. Mm -hmm. I think you've talked about this in the past, maybe even you mentioned it today already, but, um, you know, this comes into church leadership as well, where churches have a, a tendency to appoint people to the board or the eldership that are the biggest donors or something like that, right? And then that changes the direction as well. Yeah. So one of the things I've I've never done is, and I could have, because I'm the founding pastor of this church, and I know in some other church structures, the founding pastor, the elders have regular access to the financial records. They know who gives what. Their view is that, you know, we're going to hold people accountable in their sexuality. We're going to hold people accountable in their family life. We're going to hold people accountable in their spiritual disciplines and we're going to hold people accountable financially. So if that's what you decide, that's fine. I have no idea what people give in the church. I never look, I never have. And it's also something, not only does it protect me from perhaps at times being discouraged because I'm sure there's some that don't give properly, but it also helps me not to fall into the the carnal trap of rewarding people Mm -hmm. strictly based upon that. 
Also, I would say this mindset that's crept into the church that we're employees of the church, that this is our, our paid job, this, so I, I'm, I'm a big fan because the Bible says don't muzzle an ox as it treads out the grain. I'm a big fan of, of churches coming alongside people that pour out 40, 50, 60 hours a week in ministry and supporting them financially. But we do not serve for the sake of the paycheck. The paycheck is irrelevant to the decisions that we make. We don't serve Christ in order to get paid. We serve Christ, and as a result, the church supports us financially. That's the mindset that we need to adopt. So when we're making decisions as leaders, as board members, as people responsible for institutional structures or denominational leadership, we should never permit the potential of losing our job to stand in the way of us keeping the organization on mission. I can tell you before God, I'm very thankful for the generosity of my local church and other institutions that I've served over the years who have blessed me financially. But when I'm making decisions, I never think to myself, oh, does that mean I might lose my job? It's just not even on my, it's not, it's not even in my thinking. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, I think there is a lot of pastors that see themselves as employees of the church. And so I can't make that decision. I can't preach that text thoroughly, or I can't confront someone who's straying because I might lose my job. Well, if that's your mindset, you're sh actually shooting yourself in the foot because people won't, people will pick up on that over time and they won't see you as a principal leader. They'll actually lose trust in you. Mm -hmm. We should be prepared at a moment's notice to lose our jobs, to lose our lives on principle. And so, for example, in the life of a, a church, if we're going to preach the whole counsel of God's word, which I true, which I trust all of our listeners would applaud. Mm -hmm. We're going to preach the whole counsel of God's word. That means anything that comes up in the text is preachable to the people of God, regardless of the fallout, regardless of the response. All of God's word is profitable. And we don't think to ourselves, well, man, I got to, I got to preach a hard hitting sermon this week and it's going to offend some people and they might gang up on me and fire me. So I'm not going to do that. Don't even let that thought cross your mind. You speak the truth and you let the chips fall where they may and you let God do what God mm -hmm. wants to do through you. Mm -hmm. So that's really important. Yeah. I was just going to say too, like it's, yeah. it's fundamental to that is a lack of trust in the Lord to provide for you. I just want to state that again, the Lord the Lord will provide on his terms and in his time for those that faithfully serve him. And if a Christian organization or institution that you're a part of fires you or lets you go or cuts your salary because you've sought to stay on mission and preach the whole counsel of God's word, for example, they're not worthy of you. <laughs> so if they cut you loose as a result of your stance, Consider that a blessing from the Lord. You've done the right thing. You can sleep well at night. They're not worthy of you. And that just is an indication they've lost their way anyway. Yeah. Now, that reminds me of um, Galatians. Uh, Paul talks about being a servant of Christ and basically says something to the effect of, you know, if I was serving other people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. And I think maybe you want to talk a little bit about the, just the need to not be listening to all the voices. <laughs> I think in, in an, in every Christian institution, first of all, when institutions are founded, there's generally a catalytic leader, a founder, 
or a, a small collection of catalytic leaders that determined that this was a need that needed to be met. We need a church in this city or we need a seminary in this province or state, or we need a hospital on this corner. So there's a, there's a, somebody who owns the mission, who was the catalytic leader that was used of by God or a group of people to start the institution. But over time, you want to be somewhat collaborative as a leader. You want to listen to people, but you can become so collaborative. You just become sort of a mushy democracy where your, your mindset is, well, everybody has an equal voice. Who's a vested partner in this institution. And you can end up listening to so many different voices. And now your mission strays from your founding mission to just sort of the, the middle ground of all the voices that are speaking into your institution, making demands of you. This is a critical error for, for institutions that want to survive, allowing donors, for example, to dictate mission. No, the founding, the founding personalities who hopefully have represented their founding mission in some sort of a mission statement or constituting document. That's, that's what keeps the, the institution on focus and donors give to the mission. Donors don't give and then determine the mission. This is critical. Just like we don't, ask people to give to our church so they can then determine what we're going to do and not going to do. We declare our purpose to our congregations and then people give to that mission. We also can fall into the trap of trying to appease too many people. If you are, let's say the president of a Bible college and your approach is, well, I'm going to, I'm going to you know, open the doors wide and have all the churches speak to me and tell me what they want, what they don't want. You can end up with so many different ideas, maybe some good ones, maybe some harebrained ones as well that are, that are not helpful. And if your mindset is, well, I'm going to ask for input because I, I just, you know, I want to kind of perk up my creative juices. I want to understand how well we're doing. Okay, great. But if you're going to then try to accommodate all of these different voices and opinions to appease people, to keep them fans of your institution, you're going to be a exhausted and B you're going to be pushed off of mission. We call it mission drift. So I'm not a big fan of, you know, polling, voting, surveying people and in institutions, asking them what they, they want. Uh, I'm a fan of making sure you have a strong central leader or collection of leaders, a team of leaders who in a crystal clear way, understand the purpose of the institution and are guardians of that institution. They may seek input on lesser matters, but they don't seek input on the mission of the organization. They guard it. They champion it. They articulate it. They remind people of it regularly and they never allow manipulative people or coercive people or people with other agendas to take them off track. Really, really critical. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're listening to the voice of God rather than just the voice of man, presumably God is going to help keep you on mission. But again, our propensity for people pleasing is powerful. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we all want to be liked. That's just the reality. And because we want to be liked, we can often be more concerned about what people think than what God thinks and lose our way. Mm -hmm. Now, when an organization starts up, obviously needs strong leadership. Uh, and so we've pointed out, you know, don't listen to all the opinions of people, stay true to the mission, stay, keep the leadership strong. One of the challenges comes in leadership transitions. 
Yeah. Uh, and so maybe you want to talk about that a bit. Well, as I mentioned already, I do believe, I, I, I do believe that God uses people to accomplish his purposes. And very often there is a singular or small group of catalytic leaders that found the institutions that last and make a difference. In fact, if the person isn't catalytic, in other words, dynamic, passionate, bold, courageous, clear-minded, those institutions generally don't last long anyway. But the ones that last for, for generations, the seminaries, the universities, the social services organizations, the churches, the denominations, generally when you follow back, you trace their history, there's some sort of a founder generally one person or a series of founders that that started that. Well, eventually people retire, die, move on, whatever it might be, and they're replaced. And the propensity in a lot of institutions is to let the pendulum swing too far the other way. It's like, well, this person was pretty intense. They were very focused. They were clear-minded. So we're sort of tired of that for a period of time. So we're going to bring someone in to replace him that's more passive, <laughs> dispassionate, a little more democratic. And this often, this swinging of the pendulum often causes institutions to lose their way. So we see this, you know, the church has a pastor that's too powerful and maybe even messes up. And, and so the next guy, it's, well, it's a team approach. We don't really have a leader in our church anymore. It's just sort of mm -hmm. a team approach. That's a mistake. So don't, when you're bringing new leaders in to replace founding leaders or catalytic leaders, Still look for, you don't have to look for the same personality, but look for a catalytic principled leader because a lack of long-term principled leadership will, generally speaking, destroy an institution. Think of the, the impact that Solomon had for all his flaws. He was known for his wisdom. Mm -hmm. And then he's replaced by whom? Rehoboam, who's known for the exact opposite. He's a fool and he destroys the kingdom. It splits it in half. It's a swinging of the pendulum. Now I understand that that was a hereditary role, but the leaders of Israel could have had a say in who replaced Solomon. They wouldn't necessarily find among his sons one exactly like him, but someone who still values, let's say, wisdom, for example, which is one of the characteristics that made Solomon great. Um, so making sure that as leaders are replaced, as boards are refreshed, as new presidents are picked as new for seminaries or Bible colleges, as new principals are selected, as new chairmen are appointed, as new pastors are appointed, always look for people that are principled leaders who clearly understand the founding mission and purpose of the organization. I don't think the mission of an organization should ever change. And if it changes, it's time for that institution to close and for a new institution to start that represents whatever this, the new mission should be. Mm -hmm. So the way we, we, um, do ministry, for example, our, I don't know, our musical style, our address, our programs, our liturgy, our preaching style, those things can change over time. I mean, people have not been preaching in the English language since the beginning of time, you know, mm -hmm. language has changed over time. So those, those, those expressions can change over time. But the mission never changes, and it takes strong principled leaders to keep an organization on mission. I would also say that many people that aspire to Christian leadership lack a little bit in 
understanding culture or the issues that surround culture. Part of that is because if they grew up in an in, in institutions or churches or denominations and never talk about that, then they're just not familiar with thinking in those categories. But we have to have leaders leading organizations that are familiar with what's going on in culture. So if you're if you're leading a church, you're we, we don't just need guys that are great at exegesis and you know parsing verses in Greek to lead churches. We need that guys that are strong in theology and exegesis and hermeneutics and have homiletical skills. But we also need guys that to lead churches and provide leadership in churches that are looking around them and seeing what the threats are, for example, in culture or where culture is progressing and are, are adapting their ministry mechanisms to those changing circumstances. Seminaries, a lot of seminaries fail to adapt. I've been part of a couple seminaries that are pretty skilled in teaching exegesis, uh, biblical studies, but are atrocious in the area of cultural engagement and actually training people for real life ministry. You know, I went through nine years of Bible college and seminary total. I was never taught something as basic as how to do a wedding or funeral and all of that. It's like, how do, how do you miss that? I'm, I, I planted this church. I never even took a course in church planting. They just skip that. I think I had one course in apologetics, but they, you know, they pile on endless courses in Greek and Hebrew, which, you know, I'm grateful for. But if you're going to train, if you're a seminary, for example, and you're going to train people to do ministry in the modern world, why are you not introducing people to church planting? Why are you not introducing people to cultural theology? Why are you not introducing people to ethical conundrums that they will face? Why are you not introducing people to courses in apologetics? It's funny how we, we tend to teach around the periphery and not actually equip people for some of the things they, they need the most. So this all boils down to being out of touch with culture or the issues or the real needs. And it's really important that leaders are, are reading the news, are, are watching election processes, are aware of what's going on in culture, are actually having congregate um, conversations with their congregants or their students mm -hmm. and, and adapting their ministry to be able to meet those very real needs. So those are some of the things, Chris, that I think take institutions off mission and cause them to, to, to drift in directions that aren't helpful. Mm -hmm. So let's say we've got somebody listening to this that has some, some uh, degree of control over an institution, but, it could even be somebody who shouldn't have control, like a donor that maybe needs to back off in the pressure of uh, yeah. the the direction. We're talking about. Let's talk about how to fix this. How do we? How do we stay true to our mission? How do we stay on mission so that we don't end up with these organizations? Like I know we're starting a, a brand new uh, classical Christian school here. Yeah, I'm well involved in that and thinking. I don't want all this work to be tossed down the drain twenty years from now with a, a secular school now, right? So how do we stay true to what we're about? Well, yeah, I, I planted a church in this city 21 years ago. We're starting a school in this city. We're not the only church. We're not the only school. But when we look around at a landscape of our area, we're not meaning to be offensive. But the reality is we saw some pretty significant deficits in the Christian community. And we may be starting for, you know, other institutions down the road for higher education. I'm, I've been thinking about it for years, as much work as it's going to be. I, I, I think there needs to be some thought put into how we can train men 
uh, in particular for Christian ministry. And unfortunately, I'm not particularly impressed with a, a lot of the Bible colleges and seminaries in, in my country. So there might be a need for us to start something like that and some other uh, institutions that will, that will meet uh, real needs in culture. So I would just say this, the principles that I'm going to share are super critical. The corrective principles are super critical for those in high levels of leadership. But if you're involved, even on the lower tiers of influencing the direction of an organization, you need to understand what the mission is of that organization as well. So let's just use church, for example. It's not just a senior pastor's job to know the mission of the church. That's right. The elders need to understand it. The staff, the deacons, the team leaders, the Sunday school teacher, right down to people that are serving in very behind the scenes capacities because the, the micro decisions they're making are going to affect the mission of the church or the expression of how that mission is, is, is carried out. So I think it starts with understanding that if we are in a position of leadership or influence, which all Christians in a certain sense are, that it's a stewardship. It's not ours. It's not our church. It's not our denomination. It's not our seminary. It's not our school. It's not our pregnancy center. It's a stewardship from God. And God has given it to us, granted it to us, stewarded it to us to accomplish a particular purpose that's near and dear to the heart of God, we hope. So you don't get to decide then what the gospel is. Let's say if you're, if the institution is a church, you don't get to decide what the gospel is if you're running an organization. You don't really get to decide the curriculum if you're running a seminary. You don't get to decide whether abortion's right or wrong if you're running a crisis pregnancy center. These are the fundamental mission of a truly Christian organization will be clearly reflected in the word of God. You are a steward. So you hold it with a cupped hand, not closed fist. And you have to, you will be held accountable to stay true to that mission. So seeing it as a stewardship rather than an ownership issue, we've often said ownership is the enemy of stewardship actually helps us to keep on mission. Cause as we go back to the word of God and we're reading the word of God and studying the word of God, we're always being refreshed. We're always being reminded of why we do what we do. And that helps to keep us on mission. So that vertical God word stewardship type mentality is really, really important. It's also important for us to just constantly state our mission and remind people, realign people, if you will, with what our mission is. So as a pastor of a church now for 21 years, I, I don't just assume that everyone understands our mission. We, we remind people of it over and over and over again. The macro mission of our church as an institution in culture is the glory of God. So the mission of God, we say, is the glory of God. And I say that in sermons now again. I say it in conversations. The mission of God's the glory of God. The mission of God's the glory of God. The mission of God's the glory of God. I say it. I say it in a memorable way. Because I want people to be vertical in their thinking. I want people to understand that we're not just here to run day camps and start schools and run youth groups and run Sunday services and offer counseling. Ultimately, everything we do needs to be to glorify God. And then our specific mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Because the Great Commission is that founding commissioning verse in Matthew 28, where we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize the lost. Uh, 
in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we have that promise that Christ will be with us. So we just remind people of that all the time. Mm -hmm. So when we're making decisions about spending money or bringing leaders on or moving addresses or, st or starting new ministries, in the forefront of our mind, it's like, well, how does this decision aid us in our mission? And if it doesn't aid us, we don't do it. So we're not afraid of closing things down or reassigning people to new areas of ministry, or we're not afraid to evaluate the effectiveness of what we're doing if it doesn't serve our, our driving mission. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really important. I, I like, I'm not saying that it's biblically necessary, but I like the idea when a Christian institution goes through the hard process of writing out in one loaded, saturated sentence, their mission, mm -hmm. and then reminds, reminds, reminds people of it over and over and over again to help them keep aligned. Otherwise, you just start going in all different directions, mm -hmm. right? You just... It's like a it's like a preacher that starts in a text. I remember years ago there was a dear preacher who was preaching from Genesis three, and you know he started preaching from Genesis three, and then all of a sudden he's talking about baptism, he's talking about marriage, and he's talking about like stuff that's not even related to the text he's preaching from. It's just various and sundry biblical thoughts. Yeah, it wasn't that anything he said was bad, but it wasn't anchored in the text and. The mission of every Christian organization is to be anchored in their mission statement, which is anchored in the word of God. Mm -hmm. That's really good. And I, just as I hear that, I think to myself, we live in a culture of constant distraction. Uh, so, you know, you have something on your to-do list and it's hard enough in our culture just to get that to-do list item done without jumping on to some 10 other things, Facebook, social media, getting lost in reels. And so it's similar in terms of the mission of a church. It can so quickly get buried beneath all the other great ideas, voices again, like we said earlier. And so just keeping it clear and simple. I think to your credit, one of the things you've done is, uh, is saying those memorable lines, like the mission of God is the glory of God. If I, if I was to ask probably anybody in our church, Hey, what's one like Aaronism, like thing that Aaron says all the time? <laughs> They'd be like, oh, it's the mission of God is the glory of God or something like that. Okay. Yeah. So anyways. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's, that's encouraging, but it, it's ultimately st a strategic way to help people stay focused, mm -hmm. to help people stay focused. If I go to the hardware store, I'm not there to buy groceries. If I go to the grocery store, I'm not there to go ice skating. Like the... the these stores exist, they have a broad variety of products, but it's sort of all within the same area. Mm -hmm. And the, the church, for example, has a specific mission. Mm -hmm. A Christian school has a specific mission. A hospital has a specific mission. And if we, if we lose sight of our mission, we can just get sort of wrapped up in doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And it, mm -hmm. it really takes us off off course. It actually can be detrimental to our cause. Mm -hmm. um, a third one would be, uh, now, I, I, we're not God, so we can't see all things. But I would call it looking around the curve. So when, we're, when you're driving on, a, like, say, a dark road at night, and let's say you're, there's trees on either side of the road, you're going to drive a little more carefully, a little more attentively than if you're on a wide open highway in the middle of the day with the sun shining down and you can see for miles. When you're on a curved road, 
you drive a little more tentatively because you you don't want to suddenly run into a moose, a bear, a boulder, a fallen tree, a stop, you know, stop traffic. You 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 drive with a little more of an attentive look. Now, can you actually see around the curve? No. But if you're driving for a hundred miles and you notice that every five miles there's boulders on the road, then you can sort of anticipate that there's probably going to be boulders in the road for a long time to come. And so I'm going to drive differently than if I've never ran into any obstacles. So leaders need to anticipate the obstacles is what I'm trying to get Mm -hmm. at as best as they can. And if you've already experienced several obstacles and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to anticipate what the next obstacles going to be. So we're, we need to be able to see the obstacles or see the traps. And I and I, I think that sometimes out of Christian naivety, there are some organizations that don't understand that, the, that there are dangers and there are obstacles to their mission that lie ahead of them. And they make decisions in good faith in the moment without realizing where that's going to lead. So I'll, I'll just give some examples. So let's say that... Um, you know, you're, you're running a, a, a seminary or a Bible college, and you're obviously in a good seminary or Bible college. You're going to have some pastoral theology and some hermeneutics and biblical studies and systematic theology and whatnot in your curriculum. But you're noticing in Canada and the U.S. that there are culture wars raging. There are Marxist philosophies that are becoming mainstream. There's radical LGBTQ agenda rising and becoming mainstream. There's the problem of statism and medical tyranny and all these sorts of things. Well, that's a fact. You're seeing that around you. So when you look around the curve, you shouldn't be assuming that it's sunny, going to be sunny and smooth and obstacle free for the next next hundred miles, you should assume unless there's radical transformation that this problem is probably going to continue for a period of time. So then you equip your students, you modify your curriculum, you add courses, you bring people into chapel, you partner with other institutions in order to meet, to, to equip your students for the fact that there's some difficult traveling ahead. You don't put your head in the ground and just keep teaching Greek systematics and biblical studies and hope that the problems go away. But this is where many Bible colleges and seminaries, because they're not in tune with what's going on, they're not looking around the corner, they're graduating people that have no idea how to actually do ministry in the modern context. They're not aware of the issues. They haven't thought through them. And they flounder and fall flat in their face two years in, and they're out of ministry. So being able to look around the road and anticipate what are some of the unique challenges that our Bible college and seminary graduates are going to face as a pastor, when I'm preaching, I'm, I'm thinking about, obviously I want to preach the text, but I'm thinking about what are some of the issues my people are going to experience on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, I'm looking around the curve and I want to prepare them as best as I can for that. When we start our Harvest Classical Academy this fall, we we think that we're going to have a pretty good product for lack of a better term. We we're going to train up students that don't just aren't just raised in an environment where they have Christian teachers that are praying for them and, and um, you know, reading the Bible to them one, one class per week. We want to train our students to actually think Christianly about all of life, about economics, about law, about civics, about marriage, et cetera. 
We want our, our graduates to think Christianly and be well-equipped. Why are we doing that? Because we're looking around the corner. It's an anti-Christian environment. It's probably going to get worse before it gets better. So I want our young people to be equipped and galvanized for that. Sadly, many Christian schools aren't really Christian schools. They are, they're teaching the public school curriculum. They have a prayer in chapel. They have a prayer at the beginning of the day, chapel once a week, and their teachers are Christian and they have a religion course, Mm -hmm. but they're not, they're not necessarily being taught mathematics or science or the languages from a distinctly Christian perspective. They're not necessarily being taught law from a distinctly Christian perspective. You can be in a Christian institution, even a Christian liberal arts institution, and you you become familiar with American or Canadian law, but no one ever actually explains to you the ultimate source of legislative authority. Mm-hmm. This is why it's so shocking in our country that Christian people are opposed to the idea that every nation's statecraft if it's going to function properly, it's legislative processes, it's structures. If it's not founded and grounded in the revealed word of God will fail. It's like, this is something they've never even thought about. We have people that are in engineering or people that are in medicine that are here, here at church on Sunday worshiping, but they actually don't even, they don't even know how to function in their occupations as Christians, aside from praying before they eat their lunch. Right. They don't understand how to think Christianly about all of life. And I want our students to be able to do that. And I think we're going to do a bang up job and all the families that are enrolled in that are, are going to be hugely blessed by that. So that would be another thing that, that we need to need to develop is that, that ability to discern, to anticipate what's going to come, which isn't hard if you're paying attention to what's going on around you. Mm-hmm. And then to, to, to guide our, institutions around that curve to prepare our people to do battle with whatever lies ahead. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm thinking of like crisis pregnancy centers. You know, the worst thing you can do is be vague about why you exist. The worst thing you can do is not be on mission. Be be wise as a serpent, you know, be be careful who you say what to, but it's, it's not going to get easier. Elizabeth Warren, the Senator in the U S said, there are three in her state. There are three pregnancy centers for every abortion center. They're misleading people. These pregnancy centers, we need to close them down and close them down across the nation. They're coming for you. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Cower and, and sort of pretend you don't exist. No, stand up and be bold. We're anti-abortion. We don't, you, you cannot be murdering your children, period. You need to know that we're going to speak the truth. Obviously, you're going to do it kindly and in in keeping with the context you're in. But how can this how can the, how can it possibly be that there are crisis pregnancy centers that never actually tell someone you sh- you should not you cannot have an abortion abortion is murder you cannot do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that would be another one. And then fourth, we need bold leadership. I've kind of mentioned this before. We need don't don't appoint people to leadership if they show no signs of courage. We need principled leaders. Enough is enough. We can't be appointing flaky people to leadership anymore. If that means we have fewer leaders, so be it. They're going to carry a bigger stick, I guess. They're going to have more influence. But when we're selecting leaders to lead our institutions, they have to be bold, principled, courageous people. 
not just people looking for a job in a Christian institution, not just people that know how to schmooze and deal with the political structures, bold principle leaders. That's refreshing. Mm -hmm. That's what people want. That's what people need. Keeping on mission, prioritizing mission over money. Money is just a sidebar. It's a footnote. It accommodates, it helps. It's just a tool. It's not the mission. The mission is not money. We cannot be driven by money, financial concerns. I truly believe that if you stay on mission in your organization, God will give you more money than you need to accomplish his purposes through you mm -hmm. because he wants you to succeed. But as soon as you buckle and bow to the donorship, to your tithers, to your tuition payers, whatever, and try to just accommodate everything or get off mission, you failed. Mm -hmm. You failed in your, in your uh, institutional uh, purposes. Yeah. You, and not only that, but if you're a Christian, you also will end up failing spiritually. Obviously God says you can't have two masters, mm -hmm. right? So you don't want to make money actually the master. You know, it's amazing. Just back to some illustrations, the young men's Christian association, mm -hmm. the young women's Christian association. When I was a kid, we used to go swimming at the YMCA, the YMCA. You know, yeah. These were yeah. regular well-known institutions in culture. They had Christian in the name. They're not Christian at all. They just anymore. call it the Y. Yeah. It's they're not Christian at all because they lost their, they lost their fundamental mission just representing Christ. And a large part of it is, oh, we want, we want government funding or we want, the utility bills are so high. So we'll just open the doors wide for anybody and everybody to come in and influence, or we'll expand our board or we're concerned about insurance. Look, do the right thing mm -hmm. and God will bless it. The other, th another um, warning I would say is that oftentimes organizations drift because there's an individual or a series of individuals in that are allowed into the leadership and influential positions that are actually poisonous to the institution. I remember this years ago when we were planting our church and someone said to me, Aaron, if you're planting a church and don't forget when we, there was a time when we were seven people and you know, 14 people. And ultimately when we went public, we were like 35, I think, or 36 people, 24, or 25 adults, 11 little kids. Someone said, one of the biggest challenges of a church plan, I'll never forget this, is because you're small, you're going to have people in the Christian community that aren't necessarily principled people. They want to be part of it because they think, oh, I can be a big fish in a small pond. Mm -hmm. I can have influence. In larger churches, no one pays attention to me, but now I can have influence. And a lot of these people come with agendas. So I was like hypersensitive when new people would come that were Christians from other churches. Like, Do they have an agenda here? Are they trying to take me off mission? And we did a pretty good job in warding them off. But institutions, because they're often desperate for volunteers or help or professors or teachers or whatever, can easily start to let people into positions of leadership that are there because they're self-serving. They want to be a big fish in a small pond and they start to poison the pond they they start to promote their agenda. Um, many of these people, they don't want to be the top dog leader, but they're sort of the de facto leader or influencer in the organization. They don't want the ultimate responsibility or authority or accountability or criticism, but they stay in the, in the shadows. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and they they influence organizations often negatively. And catalytic leaders need to be able to spot those people and, and deal with them because they can easily foul up the waters and take the organization off mission. I would also say that um, we need to be open to new ministry approaches. That's fine. I'm not a traditionalist. I I, I don't think that the motto of the church should be, well, we do it this way because we've always done it that way. I think we, we can be flexible and creative. I have a missionary's heart. So I know that when you go into a mission, foreign mission field, you need to adapt to the, you know, you need to adapt your, your ministry expressions or your strategies to the culture that you're in and culture changes over time. We're dealing with different issues now than they were in the Reformation. We're dealing with different issues now than they were in the first century. There, there's some overlap, but they're different issues. So we can be flexible in terms of our, again, our programs, our approach, the people we have in place, the ministries we run, the opportunities we offer, but we cannot afford to get off track when it comes to our mission. So to those of you that are part of various Christian institutions, let's say you're part of a a Christian university. Can you actually identify right now in your head the mission of that university in one sentence? Mm -hmm. If you're in a church, can you identify the mission? Could you could you go to your your pastors or elders and say, "Hey, brother, what is the mission of our church?" In one sentence, could you could you walk into a, a a crisis pregnancy center as a volunteer and say, "What is the mission of this organization?" Mm-hmm. Could you walk into whatever the institution might be, a soup kitchen, and say, "What is the mission of this organization?" Mm-hmm. So easy for people to lose mission. Because, uh, um, uh, uh, I don't know. Or just to give some vague, off-the-cuff answer. Or they say, well, oh, the mission of our church is to run kids' programs and have services. No, no, no. Now you're identifying your ministry mechanisms mm-hmm. through which you're going to accomplish your mission. But those that's not your mission. Your mission is not to do youth ministry. Mm-hmm. What's your mission? Why do you do youth ministry? Why do you have a public service? Why do you preach the word of God? What's your mission? Mm-hmm. Which, what do you, oh, well, well, our church does this and that and this, but what's your mission? Why do you do that? Mm-hmm. Well, we, we have, we offer degrees in our Bible college. Yeah, but why? What's your mission? Yeah. Why, why do you offer an MDiv? Yeah. Why, why do you teach people Hebrew? Well, why are you teaching them cultural apologetics? Why, 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 why? Ask that question, press people. And what it does is it helps them to zero in on their purpose, their mission, and it keeps them on track. Finally, Chris, I'm going to say it. How do we correct this? That's the question you've asked. Well, for some, it means repentance. Some organizations have lost their mission and they need to repent and then they need to realign or close down, (laughs) but hopefully realign. It's very difficult when an organization has lost its way to bring it back on track unless there's a crisis. But I do believe that some Christian, some previously Christian institutions are salvageable. Some aren't, they just kind of need to be abandoned. But the sad thing is, is that so often generation after generation, we have to restart what previous generations start and lost. And how much better would it be if we can keep our churches on mission, our denominations on mission, our schools on mission, our hospitals on mission, our legal fellowships on mission, whatever the institution might be. Stay on mission. Don't lose your focus. Don't get lost in the weeds, in the minutia. Don't start focusing on the footnote. Focus on the thesis. Why do we exist? Why are we here? Stay on mission. And of course, this assumes 
and presumes that their mission is a Christ-centered, God-honoring mission. So if a, if there's an organization that has a mission that dishonors God, I want them to fail. <laughs> I don't want them to last or I want them to repent. But mission, good organizations that have started to, uh, have been founded to meet real needs in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the ultimate glory of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, are ones that we want to champion and see flourish to the honor and glory of God. I've said to our church, you know, um, I love I love Harvest Bible Church here in Windsor. I am deeply thankful for the privilege that God has given to me to, to lead in some way during my lifetime. I have no interest in looking over the pasture fence and believing the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. I'll create my own problems here. So I have a long-term mindset but if at any point now or long after i'm gone if this church loses its mission i want it to close down i don't want it to last i don't want it to endure mm -hmm. if this church becomes heretical if this church becomes um an enemy of the cross of jesus christ if this church becomes marked by compromise i don't want it to last mm -hmm. and if bible colleges lose their mission i want them to fail if Christian schools or pregnancy centers lose their mission, they should close down or as I've said already, repent and be realigned with the mission and purposes of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, thank you for that discussion. I think that's helpful as we consider how to realign ourselves and stay on mission so that we avoid mission drift. Thank you to each of our listeners for tuning in today. As a reminder, you can hear this podcast on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Download their app, I was just chatting with the guys from Fight, Laugh, Feast this week, emailing back and forth and uh, just learning about the technology they're using that is uncancelable. It's really cool. They designed their own platform for hosting these podcasts. So we're so grateful for their hard work in that and uh, what they're doing creatively there. We can also, you can also hear the podcast on the CJXC Radio, Canada's Constant Christian Companion, 11 a.m. on Tuesdays and rebroadcast 11 p.m. on Thursdays. Thank you, Aaron, for this discussion, and we hope to all our listeners that you'll tune again next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.